you know, backyard chickens have been exploding because of the pandemic and everyone wants chickens. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Not literally exploding. <laughs> Not literally not exploding. exploding. No, for. the phenomenon. Demand for. Yeah, sorry. No, chicken chickens are not exploding. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why vaccination rates are so low in healthcare workers. What exactly is going on? And the reason why... I bring this up is I had a conversation with my mother recently in which she went to a healthcare provider who actually advised her not to get vaccinated. Uh, well, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Advised anyone who is under the age of 50 not to get vaccinated, which really took me aback to hear that a healthcare provider would say this. And so I'm just really dumbfounded as to how vaccination rates for COVID can be so, not that they're like low, low, but that they're lower than you would expect for healthcare workers. Well, I'm, I'm going to go one step further, Matt. A close friend of ours had a, a double tragedy this week. I know. She's from Canada and her elderly parents, who were 99 and 100 years respectively, uh, living up in Ottawa, had not been able to get vaccinated. And they both got COVID-19, brought into the home by the home health aid, and they both died. Oh, oh that's terrible. Jeez. That's terrible, Chris. So I'm thinking, like, how in the world is it that that home health aides of the elderly are allowed not to be vaccinated? Right. Good question. This is, this is this is like the thing that people talk about in abstract, but here it is. It's not not very abstract at all, and totally avoidable. Totally avoidable. Well, I didn't mean to begin the podcast on such a downer, but uh, so I'll switch to something happier then which is that we got we got another five star rating oh really uh we did let me let me let me read this one to you so this one is from andrew masucci in the u.s and this says i found this podcast fairly recently and as an aspiring epidemiologist with an interest in non-communicable disease i have particularly appreciated the variety of topics still discussed throughout the covid19 pandemic i really enjoyed the most recent episode related to concussion testing hmm. so Pretty cool. That's great. Well done, everybody. That's great. Yeah, thank you. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a uh, study of a drug for treatment of obesity. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about whether or not, and if so, why Africa needs local solutions to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then in our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that made us laugh out loud or things that we found fascinating. So let's jump right in with segment one. So we're going to talk about an article, as I said, that looked at the effect of a drug for treatment of obesity. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, and it was entitled The Effect of Continued Weekly Subcutaneous Semaglutide. How do I pronounce it? Anyone know? Uh, as good as, as I can guess. Sem I think it's semaglutide. I had Sem to look it up. I had to look it up. Yes, semaglutide versus placebo on weight loss maintenance in adults with overweight or obesity, the step four randomized clinical trial by first author Dominica Rubino, Rubino of the Washington Center for Weight Management in Arlington, Virginia. My understanding is that, say it again, Jess, semaglutide? Semaglutide, I think. That semaglutide is also known as Ozempic. Yeah. 
which is I know the commercials for because I watch way too much television during the pandemic. So I know the theme songs or the, the jingles for all of these drugs. Oh, 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 Zampic. Anyway, shouldn't give them free advertising. Should, shouldn't give them free advertising. But I do know I do know this drug because, of course, this is a drug that is already approved for use for treatment of, of diabetes. So it's not uh, a new drug specifically, but they were testing this as a, a drug for weight loss. And I should say it was a, a, a really sort of a testing not just whether or not it could lead to weight loss, because they knew that already, but whether or not ending treatment for uh, with this particular drug would lead to sustained weight loss. A few headlines on this one. So MedPage Today says maintenance semaglutide keeps shedding the pounds. MD Magazine says semaglutide helps curb obesity, comma, weight problems. And Medscape says ongoing semaglutide treatment extends weight loss in step four, which, you know, given you don't know what really step four means, I thought that was not the greatest of headlines. But anyway, I will leave that to the headline writers and turn it over to you, Jess, to tell us what they did in this study and what they found. Sure. So, so basically, as we all know, the context here, obesity and overweight are critical public health problems. And many of the interventions that are used to try to stem obesity and overweight are, 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 are not very effective in the long term. And so there has been, as we know, you know, gastric bypass and gastric sleeve is probably one of the few interventions that have really succeeded in kind of turning the tide in some of these, in some of these circumstances. And so the question here is, can the use of this medicine, semaglutide, here they're, they're using it as an, in, as an injection, although I think in certain contexts, it also can be used as a pill. Maybe that's the difference between the two medications. Um, but mm -hmm. what they tried here was the injectable version of it. And so the question is, can an injection of semaglutide taken once a week alongside lifestyle interventions improve weight loss and weight maintenance among people who are obese and overweight? And so this um, component of the study has been kind of takes place in the context of this larger step four study, which is looking at both the effect of this pill at higher doses. And so this particular study is kind of looking at maintenance after this initial run in period, kind of is there um, maintenance and continuation of weight loss after the dose is dialed down. So let's get into some of the details. So this was a randomized double-blind clinical trial that lasted 68 weeks and recruited and enrolled obese and overweight people without diabetes. And this is of note, as Matt mentioned, so this medication is primarily used, it's an anti-diabetic medication and increases insulin secretion, so increases sugar metabolism. And so that's kind of the mechanism as to what, um, what is going on here. There were 803 people who were followed in this study. The study design was a little bit complex in that it involved this 20-week run-in period to try to, at the end of the run-in period, have a standardized dosing among the participants who were who continued on for this segment of the study where they looked at maintenance and also to, um, to focus on participants who were able to tolerate the medicine. So there were 16 weeks of dose escalation, 
and then four weeks of maintenance dosing to reach this optimal dosing, 2.4 milligrams per week. And then after this run-in period, the participants were randomized two to one to 48 weeks of continued treatment, uh, 535 of them, or placebo plus lifestyle intervention. So that was 268. So there was a two to one twice as many participants in the semaglutide arm compared to the intervention arm. And this study takes place after that run-in period, looking at the period of weekly maintenance dosing. Compared to placebo, both groups received lifestyle intervention. Um, the core outcome was percent change in body weight from week 20 to week 68. They also looked at change in waist circumference, systolic blood pressure, and physical functioning as measured from the SF36. So what they found, interesting, continued treatment with semaglutide resulted in additional mean body weight loss among participants in the group of people who received semaglutide injections once a week after that initial study phase, where they had a mean body uh, weight change of negative 7.9. So that meant that they continued to lose weight during this period of maintenance semaglutide injections, compared to an increase in 6.9% in mean body weight change among participants who were receiving placebo and the lifestyle treatment. So the people in the placebo group gained weight through this period after this initial evaluation of the study in the run-in period, where participants in the semaglutide group continued to, to lose weight. And they saw improvements, too, in waist circumference, blood pressure, and physical functioning. Um, one of the interesting things that's uh, about this study was the adverse effects. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. There were a lot of gastrointestinal adverse effects reported among the participants, which suggests that uh, maybe a lot of people don't tolerate this medicine very well, so maybe it's not a of a cure-all, it's not necessarily going to work for all people if it relates to a lot of, you know, causes a lot of G, uh, GI events. And so their, their conclusion is that the treatment of semaglutide in this way, kind of in a maintenance way, over a longer period of time could continue to help obese and overweight people maintain weight loss and continue to lose weight in a way that these shorter-term interventions, as we saw in the placebo group, participants tend to lose weight, or sorry, tend to gain back weight after the intervention is over. One of the interesting things that I will let the two of you talk about, because I don't work that I don't work in clinical trials, was they um, they they use this estimand approach, which I thought was kind of neat, kind of you know in in lieu of the intention to treat approach, and so I thought they did that nicely. They kind of engaged this. Um, this my understanding is it's this kind of newish approach to kind of standardize the way comparisons are made in clinical trials, but I don't know a whole lot about the details, but I was reading, I was reading through it and it was nice to see how they, how they laid out their different analyses. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. I, I can't say I totally followed all of it, but I agree with you. They were sort of trying to do this. Well, I, what I thought of is more of actually a per protocol type analysis and using some of the more newly developed methods for, for doing this rather than the old methods that we would use where you just say per protocol, we just put everybody in the, in the groups of what they actually did. And we, you know, we pretend like that's not problematic in terms of confounding and, and, and bias. So Chris, what, what was your take on this study? Mm, yeah. Fascinating study with all sorts of, of, of sort of astonishing implications really. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with, I guess the, the, the biggest you know, take home, which is that when when you look at the history of pharmacological interventions t for weight loss, it's been pretty grim, right? You you'll see 
you know, individuals who lose, you know, two or three pounds and then they gain it right back again. And, and like, you know, the, the medication is filled with side effects. And so it's really a very poor risk benefit ratio. But here we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, if you, if you add up the, the run in and then the continued use of the drug, it, it approach about 20% weight loss at just over a year, which is, which is a lot. And I'll, I'll, I'll remind people who may not know, but that, uh, you know, as a clinician, if someone came to me and said that, you know, they had lost 10% of their, their body weight and they couldn't really explain how, I'd be working them up for cancer at that mm-hmm. point. And so like a 10% loss and drop in body weight is a, is a huge clinical uh, event. A 20% drop in body weight due to a medication is, is, a, is a really is, is a game changer. So that's really remarkable. But it did not come for free. As just noted, there were all sorts of, of, of side effects. And this is also interesting because it tells you that the pharmacology of this drug is not quite so straightforward as, as they imply in the introduction, which is that it increases insulin secretion. Because if, you know, if for those of you who, who, who have taken care of patients with type 2 diabetes, you, you know that when you start someone on, on insulin, because they have failed oral hypoglycemics, what you're going to see is that their blood sugar will come down, but their weight is going to go up because insulin mm. is a storage hormone, right? And so it's interesting that here that we have a mechanism of action that is that uses insulin as part of the pathway, but leads to weight loss. And so there's much more to this story than just insulin. It, it has, it, I think it seems to, they're, they're implying that it has a lot to do with, with a change in one's appetite and also a, a, a change in the, in the propulsive behavior of, of the gastrointestinal tract. And so it has, it has all sorts of physiological effects, which is not surprising because glucagon is a very complex complicated hormone that does a lots of things in the body one of which is to is to stimulate insulin production but but there's much more to it than that and so I, I think that, that this is a this is an interesting compound obviously very powerful a couple of the other things I, I thought were were kind of fascinating coming in out of this yes so blood pressure came down markers of metabolic syndrome hemoglobin a1c fasting blood glucose lipids triglycerides cholesterol all of those things improved the rate of cardiovascular disease significantly dropped in the study now this was this is a relatively small trial so let's take that with a grain of salt but but it is it is also noteworthy given that in the history of diabetic medications a number of drugs that have been very good at lowering blood sugars have not been able to show a reduction in the desired ultimate outcome which is cardiovascular vascular mortality. You know, the thiazetalizidone drugs, for example, have a sort of a sort of, a, you know, a bit of a checkered history, shall we say, in this, and that they they are effective at reducing the blood glucose and normalizing the hemoglobin A1C, but they were actually associated with an increase in cardiovascular uh, rates and deaths. And so this this is moving in the opposite direction, which I think is is is, is important and a reminder that, that you know, we, we have to think about, you know, the, the true physiology and the biology of these compounds rather than just looking at, at surrogate markers of, of outcome. And the last thing I, I thought that was really fascinating about this was that um, even though there was an increased rate of gastrointestinal symptoms, the, the difference between that and the placebo group was pretty was pretty small. So both groups were mm-hmm. having gastrointestinal yep. symptoms, which tells you a lot about the placebo effect, I guess, and also probably the frequency of gastrointestinal symptoms in general. But what I was what I was really struck by was the it was the reduction in psychiatric 
events yeah. or psychological events is how they, they characterize them, which kind of pairs well with the improved mental quality of life that was reported. That that was actually of a slightly larger magnitude even than the physical quality of life improvements in this group. And and it made me think that again, like, you know, so much of our self-identity is is tied into weight. And so is it possible that, you know, People are feeling less depressed and less anxious because their body image is improving and they're they're feeling more confident about themselves. Or is this, you know, possibly an indirect effect of of you know a glucagon stimulating agent that may have pluripotent effects in the brain that could mm. be stimulatory? I mean, are, what what exactly are we looking at here? I would love to to understand the mechanism behind that that change in sort of mental health well being, as as whether that is a a consequence of weight loss or whether that is that is something more directly due to the drug itself. Hmm. Well, so I, I don't know the answer to, to that question, of course, but let me pick up a little bit on the general theme there, which is that when I read this study, I didn't, you know, I didn't find a lot in here to be critical of. There were a few issues that kind of came to my mind, like they used multiple imputation for missing data, but they don't actually tell us how much uh, data was imputed, at least not in the in the main paper, which I you know, sort of really feel like is an important detail. I was impressed. They had really low loss to follow up and attrition, low rates of people stopping the medication. So really good follow through on these drugs. You know, it was a, there was a lot to like in here as a as somebody who is just thinking about the design of the study. They did use a change based outcome, which, you know, I don't truly understand myself, but I know that colleagues who are clinical trial colleagues and, and causal inference colleagues have issues with change scores and reasons why they can be problematic. I don't totally get it, so I won't fault them for that, though if there's anybody listening who can come on and explain it to us, I would love to hear it. So my mind in reading the study went to there was sort of more information that I would love. Like there was I felt like there could have been a little more that we could have learned. So for example, they they randomized patients two to one in this study two to one to get the drug, but but no explanation really of, of why two to one. There's nothing, I mean, from a methodologic standpoint, you can randomize whatever ratio you want to, but from a the sort of the equipoise ethics, you know, argument, you you typically would randomize two to two to one if you had a more of a belief that the intervention was going to work than that it wasn't. But then I always wonder if you're gonna randomize two to one, is there truly equipoise? But you know, that's a sort of a secondary condition, but I, I just want to know why, why two to one? Second of all, they they didn't just give them either the, the drug or the placebo. Everybody also got lifestyle interventions, which makes perfect sense, right? You'd want to counsel people on, on weight loss and, and lifestyle interventions as well, but it would be really nice to know whether or not there is any kind of interaction or, or effect modification by these lifestyle factors. In other words, if you change, but you both take the drug and you, you know, exercise more or change your diet, is the effect actually larger or is there really sort of it's the drug that's doing the heavy lifting or, or you know, and, and you don't get much additional benefit from the lifestyle intervention. So, you know, it felt like that could have been teased out a bit more and it just would have been useful information to, to know these things. So, you know, that was my sort of my main critique was I just wanted a, a little bit more. 
Yeah, fair enough. No, I, I, I agree. I had specifically, I was interested in their imputation approach, which they didn't go into detail. Maybe they did in the supplements, but I, I didn't get that far. But maybe, so it's possible they did, and I just didn't see it in terms of the imputation. What I thought was interesting was that as, you know, so this study, the way they designed it is that the first component of the study, everyone was receiving the medication. Mm -hmm. And then the second component, some people were taken off the medication, given placebo, and some people continued on it. And if you look at, I actually, I really like their figures because they detail, you could kind of just quickly, you could glance at the figures and really understand their core finding. But I, I'm thinking about, as Chris was talking about the mental health experience of participating in this study, it looks like mean body weights really decreased through the first wave where everyone was getting the medication. And then quickly, people started to gain weight again when they were in the placebo group and people who were in the treatment group continued to lose weight. And so at some point, as that's happening, because the study was taking place over the course of many months, as that was happening, people became likely became aware or thought they became aware of whether they were in the treatment group or the placebo group, specifically mm -hmm. the people who started to gain weight again. And since that seemed so consistent and that was a pretty strong effect, I was, I was interested in kind of the interplay, as Chris was talking about, between the psychological effects of starting to gain weight again after, after losing weight and then continued engagement with the lifestyle interventions or just, you know, kind of continued outlook on life as the benefits you may have seen from the trial are reversed while you're in the placebo arm. And so I would have loved a little more discussion kind of about that psychological component or a little more kind of, yeah, just conversation about, about how that might have played into some of these very persistent trends that they saw over the study. Yeah, two, two things I wanted to follow up there. You know, if, if in fact people knew which group they were in, obviously that could potentially affect the the way that we interpret the results of this trial. And I'm always surprised that it isn't seen as kind of standard practice in clinical trials to ask people which group they think they were in, because, you know, if you have a study, this was a study of 800 people, if you ask 800 people which group they were in, and it's more than 50% get the right answer, you know, then you're sort of in the realm of starting to think maybe some of the people right. did know which group they were in. And, uh, you know, I'm always surprised not to see that. The second thing I wanted to follow up on was I didn't get a sense for why it is they were doing this as a discontinuation study. What is it? I mean, if, if, if we have a medication that we know is working, why would you want to discontinue that medication unless there was concern about risk of taking that treatment long term or the side effects or something like that. So it just wasn't totally transparent to me what it is that was motivating for need for discontinuation. I don't know if either of you got that. Well, they, they didn't they didn't say. I, I can hypothesize that, that, mm -hmm. that my guess is that they were curious to see whether this medication semaglutide would somehow have led to a permanent change in the metabolism of these these individuals, and you didn't need it anymore. But but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like you know you know being overweight is considered to be a chronic condition, and it looks like the treatment for it is also going to be chronic. And, and just to play you know devil's advocate, I mean, if you if if I'm in the business of of selling semaglutide, wouldn't I want people to to stay on this long term? And so, what's my motivation for doing a study where I take people off of it? 
Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it makes you wonder, is, was this study uh, done at the behest of a regulator, perhaps, who may have had that same question? Do we need to put patients on a new lifelong medication or not? And, and, and it seems like perhaps the answer is, you know, well, I, I don't think this, this, this study definitively answers the question, but it, it certainly shows that, the, you know, that weight gain will be a consequence of discontinuing semaglutide. Yeah, it's funny. You're making me now realize that I didn't actually, this is a case which I normally do, and I didn't read the conflict of interest and disclosures to see where the, oh, can the I funding came from. Do you mind it's if a I really read long it? section on this paper, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I want to I read it into the record because there, there are quite a few. Um, representatives of Novo Nordisk AS, I guess that's what they say, Inc. in Sweden or Norway mm-hmm. or whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, were involved in the design and conduct of the study, collection management analysis, and interpretation of the data and preparation, review, and approval of the manuscript. Investigators, so now we're talking about the people whose names are on the uh, leading the paper, were responsible for trial-related medical decisions and data collection, which means that they were taking care of the, the population, right? But they made no, they had no input onto the protocol or the design of the study or the data collection tools at all. Mm. And on top of that, Nova Nordisk undertook site monitoring, data collation, and analysis. Two medical writers, Sophie Walton and Paul Barbliss of AXIS, a division of Spirit Medical Communications Group Limited, funded by Nova Nordisk, assisted with drafting the manuscript under the direction of the authors. Nova Nordisk did not have the right to veto publication or to control the decision regarding to which journal the manuscript was submitted. And yet, let's let's stipulate based on that, basically Nova Nordisk did the entire thing. Does seem like it. Mm. Except wow, for choosing okay. the journal. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, you know, factors into my thinking about it. I don't know exactly what it changes, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, it's worth noting. Again, I don't typically, I don't discount studies that are funded by industry. This one seems like it's a bit more heavy handed than, than many of the ones we read, but, you know, I don't discount them, but I definitely factor that into the way that I interpret the results. Mm -hmm. All right. Any any last thoughts on this one before we move on? I had just one final thought. I think you were bringing it up, Matt, too, and kind of thinking about why they chose this withdrawal, you know, kind of what was the function of looking at this study? It's, it seemed as if given the adverse effects, kind of the GI discomfort that a lot of people experienced in the initial run-in phase of the study, that they are looking to cut the dose. And so that was one of my interests in kind of thinking about this withdrawal, like if they're going to continue the withdrawal study and then within the people who are continuing on the medication, if they're then going to make two more arms and reduce the dosage in one of them to kind of see what's the minimum tolerable dose that has an effect on in terms of a maintenance or long term. So that was that was that was my kind of thought as the the next step in that one of the one of the rationales for this withdrawal is that people seem to not tolerate it very well, and mm-hmm. so can mm-hmm. they you know can they make it less frequent? Maybe not once a week, but you know once every other week or once a month, or you know I think they're going to experiment with the timing and the dosage to try to see if they can find an amount that more people are comfortable with. Yeah, and I suspected that was what it was going to be. I just was surprised that it didn't immediately jump out to me what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about, we're going to use an article as a jumping off point, but I don't think we're necessarily going to focus on the the main point of the article. But the article was a, it was a comment in The Lancet, and it was commenting on another study. It was entitled, Africa Needs Local Solutions to Face the COVID-19 Pandemic. 
uh, yep, Baum was the first author. And again, they were commenting on a on a research piece. But there were some, I thought there were some interesting statistics in here. So I just want to read them to you. Because this article was basically making the case that, you know, in Africa is going to have to come up with its, you know, solutions to the COVID-19 pandemic that are different from the way that we may have been dealing with it here in the U.S. or countries in Europe or lots of other places. So they note that at the end of 2020, there was a clear asymmetry in the pandemic's toll. Nine countries accounted for 82% of all of the cases reported. Those countries, in, in, sorry, in Africa, and those case countries were South Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Ethiopia, Libya, Algeria, Kenya, and Nigeria. So notably, a lot of those are are northern, North African countries. Of course, Nigeria, South Africa, and, and Tunisia are not. I don't know. Ethiopia probably doesn't get considered northern North Africa. Or does it, Chris? Uh, it's sort of right in the middle. I guess they would call yeah. it Horn of Africa. Yeah. Right. And and five countries accounted for 77 percent of the deaths. So those were South Africa, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia and Algeria. So, you know, a, quite an uneven distribution of covid cases and covid deaths with a big caveat there that assumes that you believe the data. And I think, Chris, we that's probably something that you're going to want to talk about. But but it's, let's assume for the moment that the data was correct then their point being that there is a very uneven distribution and therefore the approaches that countries are going to take to COVID-19 are going to be different in the different countries. So they say consideration needs to be given as to why Africa is home to 17% of the world population, but only 3.4% of the global COVID-19 cases and give more statistics out that. But then they note that so during the first wave in Africa, nearly all countries implemented stringent measures, whereas only 72% of countries did so during the second wave. So clearly, African countries are reacting differently to the COVID-19 pandemic based, you know, after they've had some experience with it, compared to the way that they acted initially when probably all of us were, country, you know, countries all over the world had very limited information to use to figure out what to do. And so they make the argument that Africa needs to think carefully about how it's going to go about continuing its COVID-19 response, particularly now that we're moving into the the time period which more and more Africa is going to have access to vaccines, although we know that that's going to be a slow process. And they make a lot of recommendations like, you know, building on the vaccine distribution programs that already exist in Africa as means for distributing the COVID-19 vaccines. But Chris, I want to start with you because I'm curious whether you believe that the what we're seeing in in the data in Africa is that truly there is far less COVID and, and COVID mortality in Africa, or whether you think this is a reporting issue, and actually Africa has been hit, you know, maybe not as hard as some of the worst hit countries, but is worse than what is being portrayed. Because I know you've done some some looks at this. Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to to stand on my favorite soapbox. So yes, I do not believe that it is true that Africa has largely been spared from COVID-19. I, I will qualify that that statement by by saying that like if we look at how the COVID epidemic hit the United States on a state by state basis, we can see that the you know it was very heterogeneous and there were sort of micro outbreaks and macro outbreaks all over the country that were occurring yeah. at different points in time. And so it is normal for you know there to be some you know 
uh, lack of alignment. It's not like everybody's you know starts at the you know at, at, a, at a line and then they they fire the gun and everybody races and the economics sort of take off in parallel. That's not how it works. And so it is entirely believable that there could be you know vast re- regional disparities in how COVID nineteen has has had an impact on the African continent. But with that saying, we also know that the you know and they say this in the paper that the that the surveillance for COVID nineteen has really not been very good. And, you know, we, we in Africa, in Africa right. Worldwide. So we, we and actually worldwide. So we, uh, we note that, you know, prior to the publication of our, of our manuscript in the BMJ, just uh, back in January, there was this sort of pervasive narrative about the Africa paradox. And isn't it weird that, you know, Africa was spared and there are all sorts of highfalutin theories flying around about, you know, the impact of BCG vaccines and OPV vaccines and, you know, our, the collective wisdom gained from the Ebola management, you know, all of these things I, I, I think are, are complicated explanations that, that don't require a complicated explanation that most of this is just absence or insufficient surveillance data. And, and you know, when we wrote our paper, we, we actually, I think, cited the same article that they did in this paper that, you know, the vast majority of COVID surveillance data came from just five or six countries in Africa. But that if you counted the total number of COVID-19 tests that had been done cumulatively, it was like one thirtieth that of what we see on a per capita basis in the United States. And so it is, it is obvious that, that there has been under surveillance for this disease. And Chris, can you tell us what your your paper found? Yeah, so we had been running a post-mortem surveillance study for three years looking for a different disease, respiratory syncytial virus, in babies and trying to understand how many babies were dying of this this disease. So when COVID-19 came along, we found ourselves in sort of the right place at the right time because we we had a a pretty experienced field team and we had an on-site molecular lab and we had good relations with with our, you know, the host hospital where we were collecting the data and we were really, you know, in an terrific position to simply amend our protocol to expand the age range and add PCR testing for COVID-19. And and when we did that, we we ended up enrolling about 370 or so individuals who had died. And of those, we were able to get samples out of 362, so just shy of 99%. And we found COVID in 20% of them. And so, you know, the the idea that COVID was not there, which was the belief at the time we did the study, was completely untrue. That, that in fact, COVID was was accounting for a fifth of all deaths in the city across the full age range. And so it was it was absolutely not true. But what was clear was that almost none of these people had been tested for COVID nineteen in life. In fact, out of the seventy individuals who had died of COVID nineteen, the majority of whom presented with classic symptoms of fever, shortness of breath, and cough. So there's like you know they weren't dying coincidentally with COVID nineteen. They were dying of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you look at those those seventy individuals, only six of them had been tested before they died. So there was a ninety percent plus underreporting of COVID or underdetection of COVID nineteen in this population. It was not rare in the least. And so you say, mm. okay, now we have two countries which have actually been doing systematic surveillance: South Africa, which has lots of resources and wealth and expertise, finding a massive impact of COVID nineteen just north of the border in Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Nothing. Right, yep. nothing. So, is is it is is it that there's really nothing, or is it that you suddenly see that there are no resources for testing and surveillance? And and you know, Zambia is in the same situation. The only reason we we detected it there was that we happened to have an existing post mortem cohort study already running that could be amended in three weeks and turned into a COVID surveillance site. Yep, and and I 
certainly share your concern about the data. I suppose I would also say that I think, you know, we've learned, we're learning from India that you can also have a situation where, you know, you, it seems like you're, you've been spared and then all of a sudden things get completely out of control. You know, you can just sort of be lucky in some ways and, and have, have put things off for quite a while, but that if you don't have a population that's vaccinated, you're still vulnerable to large outbreaks. Jess, what, let's assume that, that you know, my explanation, not that I believe it, but that is the correct one, that, that, that the data actually is, is pretty okay, that Africa hasn't been hit as bad as many other places. I have to say I, I agree with Chris that there is probably reason to believe that the data isn't that great. But even if it is, what's your, what's your reaction to this idea that, that things will have to be done differently in, in Africa in terms of how we go about dealing with the pandemic? Yeah, this is an interesting piece. And, I, you know, I think the original article was interesting, too, that this was a commentary about. I mean, this this commentary to me was was <laughs> I was reading it as if it was being, you know, kind of saying the research world is colonialist and you need to take we need to have an anti-colonialist approach to dealing with covid in Africa, which in many ways is is obvious, but Africa is not a monolith. And, you know, this piece kind of read to me that it was trying to talk to the reader and say, just remember, there are many, many, many different countries and different circumstances and different opportunities for transmission and different economic contexts and different social contexts in Africa. So it's not as if we can think of one kind of one solution that's just going to fit the whole continent. And I think, you know, the vaccination initiatives address that in some ways. But this was this was written, I, I felt like as I was reading this, it was saying to the reader, just remember your perspective on research in Africa is often colonialist. And that cannot, that is not going to work in this sort of context as we try to think of, um, and these countries try to come up with different sorts of ideas and approaches to, to reduce you know, the effect of the pandemic. But I would say for my own research, like we have seen similar sorts of commentaries and then terrible trajectories in Central America. A lot of my research is based in Central America. And there was initially this sense of, oh, Central America is getting spared. And then it very, you know, was deeply affected and tremendous amount of under-testing also. And so a lot of the the effects were coming from self-reports, were coming from clinicians, were, were not necessarily coming from this standardized surveillance network that we've seen in high-income countries. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think that the analogy that Chris made in the beginning to the heterogeneity within the United States, I think, is is pretty telling here as well, that, that if we have seen so much heterogeneity even here within the United States, Certainly, you would expect heterogeneity between countries and, and continents, and therefore there's probably you know differences in the way that we need to react. And you know, countries are different in terms of their healthcare infrastructure and in terms of their underlying distribution of comorbidities and all of those things. So you know, the idea that any you know it, that everyone would react the way that you know one country that did things well would. React probably doesn't make a lot of sense. We certainly in the U.S. didn't do that, so uh, we can't uh, claim that we we certainly we know what we're doing. But I, you know, the idea seems right on. I think that the you know the the challenge is in getting very specific solutions that lead to benefits, particularly as the vaccines are slow in coming to Africa, and and you know we need to do everything we can to speed that up. 
I, I agree. I, I think that the the truth is, I, I felt a little bit cross when reading this editorial and the you know the the paper that it referred to because it it it, it seemed to be perpetuating the belief that somehow Africa has been spared, and I, you know I, I think it is more likely than not that that is just a you know the product of bad surveillance and it is a myth. And, and you know and, and in some ways you can sort of see how easy it is to fall into that trap, right? Because a lot of what we think we understand about the impact of COVID-19 on a planetary scale comes from places like the Johns Hopkins website, right? Where you have this map that shows in mm-hmm. color-coded intensity, you know, the distribution of cases around the world and the density of incidence of cases around the world. But, you know, if you think about like Burkina Faso and Belgium, why would you assume that the provenance of the data that feed into both of those sources is equivalent, Right. You know, and, no, and, I wouldn't. and and yet, yes, you wouldn't. You know, you definitely wouldn't. And yet, the the Hopkins website erases all of that nuance because it treats them all those reporting sites as equivalent, and that is just not not a, a not a very good assumption in my view. Yeah, I guess the one thing I do always wonder about, though, is you know, to a certain extent, you know, surveillance systems aren't aren't necessary for telling us that there is a crisis. In other words, what's happening in India at the moment in terms of massive surge in in cases and hospitalizations, you know, you don't need a a really good surveillance system. People just identify that things are going badly because hospitals are overwhelmed. And, you know, you haven't heard of tons of reports of of countries in in sub-Saharan Africa being overwhelmed in their hospitals. You have heard it a little bit in South Africa, but you know, and I accept that part of that may just be that, you know, people are making it to the hospital or that the reporting isn't isn't very good. But, you know, it does seem to me there's a little bit of something there. Mm-hmm. But but remember, we're, we're working in two different contexts. So l- let's say, you know, let's take the university teaching hospital in Lusaka and compare it with an equivalently sized hospital here in Boston, say like, you know, the, the, the Mass General. Okay? They're both very big hospitals, and I, I don't know what the actual size of them is, but let's say each of them has about a thousand beds. Now, at the Mass General, I, I would think that you know people are are very sick, and and some will die. Probably several will die every day. But we're talking about you know five or ten people dying at Mass General a day. I don't know the actual number, but it's a relatively discrete number, relatively small number. And 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 so if if you saw that COVID nineteen was causing an additional 10 deaths a day, that would be a 100% increase and people would be pulling the fire alarm, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in Lusaka, people are, the baseline rate of mortality is closer to 50 to 60 deaths a day, all right? And so now you have an additional 10, so you've gone from 50 to 60, perhaps, which is a 20% increase. Now, in a, in a you know, if we saw a 20% increase at the Mass General Hospital, we would get very alarmed, of course. But, um, you know, in Lusaka, you might not notice that at all because they're not really a you know, the, the statistics are not being used and scrutinized in the same way that they are at the Mass General Hospital because of the lack of resources. You know, in fact, a lot of these these statistics would be very hard to tease out. We're trying to do this right now because they're they're documented in paper logbooks. And so for someone to sort of say, gosh, there seems to have been a 20% increase in, in overall mortality in the last three months, gee, I wonder why, would require someone to have abstracted those logs and compared them with digitized version of those logs going back two or three years, which is what we are now doing in our ongoing research. But that has not yet been done, you see. And so the assumption that people would simply notice that excess mortality, I think, is assumes that we were dealing with the same baseline mortality rate, and, and, and we're not. 
Yep, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I think you you might notice though that if you were you were you know you had more people lined up for for hospitalization than you know you were used to because you're just you know sort of seeing it. But I I get the point that if hospitals are overwhelmed all the time, you may not notice it quite as much. But I I still think you'd notice some of it oh, anyway. Oh, that's absolutely you you would notice some of it. And and the Zambians that we worked with are were reporting that last summer the hospital wards were full. Mm. Right. But they weren't saying they were full of COVID because they weren't testing for COVID. And the other thing that, that was interesting about our research is when we looked at the distribution of the deaths, you know, that is to say, what proportion of them were hospital deaths versus what are the what proportion were deaths that occurred in the community? Seventy five percent of the deaths occurred in the community outside of medical care. Mm. And so that would, again, not have registered as a rush on the medical system because they were dying at home. Yep. So you might see it in the morgue, but you're not seeing it on the ward. Okay, Jess, any, any last thoughts before we move on? No, this is an interesting conversation. I mean, I think one of the things that struck me that I'm sure you work, both of you work more closely with um, than I do because your work is based in Africa in part, I think is the idea of how, how COVID in an ongoing way interplays with endemic diseases in Africa and and how both the rollout of vaccinations and the uptake of vaccinations and then also the consequences of survival post COVID intersect with with endemic diseases. So I think, you know, the authors kind of leave end the article on those on those points that it's not just so much that the whole picture ends once vaccine rollout begins. But I think vaccine rollout will continue is and will continue to be uneven throughout, you know, throughout Africa, as it is in other places, too. And then the longer term consequences in the context of all comorbidities and endemic diseases will vary by country also. You know, so I think those are also important differences to think about. Totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I'm going to I'm going to go first. I got a, a short one here. But uh, you guys are fans of the comic XKCD. Oh, yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have, have you seen the, the most recent one on types of scientific papers? Uh, no, yeah. I should go so, with it right now. But, but so describe XKC- it. XKCD is is a for those who don't know, is a great comic that does takes on a lot of the problems in in science and reproducibility and those types of things and the the most recent one is a 12 paneled set of of research papers and the heading is types of scientific paper and then each paper has just sort of a a a title to it that would sort of group them into different categories of scientific papers and I won't read all of them to you but they are there were a few of them that kind of hit home a little bit so one would be, hey, I found a trove of old records. They don't turn out to be particularly useful, but still cool. Or my colleague is wrong and I can finally prove it. <laughs> or what are fish even doing down there? <laughs> or <laughs> or uh, the immune system is added again. <laughs> hey, at least we showed this method can produce results. That's not nothing, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of, oh, and the final one. We scanned some undergraduates. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and some thoughts on how everyone else is bad at research. Yep. Yep. Sounds- <laughs> oh, oh, I think we're guilty of that one. <laughs> sounds, sounds familiar. Sounds oh, familiar. So that one just cracked me up. The other reason I wanted to bring this one up is because it's, of course, really funny. But it has prompted a bunch of other people 
including just your your department chair to make versions of their own for their particular <laughs> subfield. So if you if you go on to Twitter and just look up look for the XKCD of this, you can also find a lot of the additional ones that people are creating that are very funny. Oh, that's great. All right, Chris, what do you got for us? Okay, well, uh, I'm going to talk about the Coriolis effect. Ooh. Okay, so All right. for those who may not remember their earth science class back in middle school, the Coriolis effect applies whenever you have a, 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 a body that is spinning and how the spinning of that thing that you're on affects the motions or the apparent motions of the things that are sitting on the surface of that spinning thing, whether it's a record player or whether in the case of the us, it's the globe itself, the world itself spinning around in space. And so this is what makes storms and weather, you know, weather air currents uh, spin in a counterclockwise direction north of the equator and a clockwise direction south of the equator. So that's the Coriolis effect. And in case you're wondering uh, who Coriolis was, he was an engineer, I think a French engineer, who um, was back in the 19th century and noticed that when you were firing very, very, very long cannons and testing them out above the equator, they tended to land and firing north, uh, they tended to land slightly to the right of where you were aiming and south they landed slightly to the left of where you're aiming. And so he, he assumed that this was probably Probably because of the rotation of the planet, and we're talking about shells that, would, that were, had a range of like seventy-five miles, because it is a very small effect. And in case you're wondering, the effect of the Coriolis effect compared with that gravity is that the Coriolis effect is only thirty millionths that of gravity. So it is a very, 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 very small effect. Now, the reason I bring this up is that I found a YouTube video of a bunch of entrepreneurial young guys in Uganda who were had set up a shop a series of stalls just along the Ugandan the uh, the equator running through Uganda and there were all sorts of like equator themed things going on at this at this site and one of them was that they had people who had a bucket of water with a hole in the bottom and a cork and then they would show that the the water went down counterclockwise north of the line and clockwise when you walked it over to the south of the line. And I was like so skeptical. This just seems like the Coriolis effect is so small. How can this possibly be true? Mm-hmm. And I started collecting my own data. So I, oh I would watch the water going down the the, the the drain in my shower. And I've been doing this for about a year now. And, and I can tell you it goes clockwise half the time and counterclockwise half the time. And sometimes you see hmm. it change directions, like right in front of you. And the thing that seems to matter the most is where my feet are. So, you know, and anyway, I, I went on to Wikipedia and, and they said, in fact, <laughs> it, is, it is a complete myth that the Coriolis effect has any meaningful effect on the way that water goes down your sink or your toilet because there are so many local effects that are far more important than the Coriolis effect, such as where you put your feet. So I uh, was then curious, like, how does one study the Coriolis effect in, you know, in a, in a scientific way? And so there was a, a, an MIT scientist called Asher Shapiro, who back in, in 1962, which was the same year that Watson and Crick published their paper about DNA, he did this seminal study using a giant bathtub on the campus of MIT to prove the Coriolis effect. But he, he had this, this very elaborate sort of study design where he had to like regulate the temperature of the room because you don't want the room air to be warmer or colder than the water because it will cause currents in the water which will obliterate the 
the, the Coriolis effect. It is that subtle. Mm-hmm. So, and on top of that, you had to make sure there was no air. So we put this sort of special, one assumes, you know, uh, air permeable uh, covering over it to make sure that there was no wind being applied to this bathtub and to sort of make sure that the water was perfectly still. He, he, he filled the bathtub and then left it for 24 hours before he pulled the cork. And it went counterclockwise. And when they repeated this, he had a, a set of colleagues in South America, when they repeated this exact experiment south of the border, they could show that that also, that went clockwise down the bathtub with, with an identical experimental model. But the, 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 the you know, the, the conclusion here was that that this 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 myth that you know this is the way it is and it always goes that way in your sink or in your or in your toilet is completely untrue even though the coriolis effect does exist and and now the way that the coriolis effect is 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 studied because it is you know it is it is difficult to do this research is to create your own spinning disk and so they rather than try to study the the effect of the earth spinning slowly you have a you know you would use a parabolic dish where it spins around and you set it to spin at just the right speed such that that the standing object that you put on it is not going to go flying off or sink to the middle you want it to be you want the centripetal force to balance gravity on this parabola. And then once you have precisely balanced those two things, then you can study the Coriolis effect, which is the residual. And they do this using hockey pucks made out of dried ice. Hockey pucks made of dried ice. Right, which are practically frictionless. Oof. Okay. And then you can see that the, the, the hockey pucks will, will actually rotate in a circle rather than going round and around like a carousel. They, the, the Coriolis effect will actually have them go in, in little mini circles rather than following the, the perimeter of the, uh, of the parabola. Chris, you're, you're kind of blowing my mind here because I was always taught that if you wake up in a strange place and you don't know where you are, the first thing you should do is to flush the toilet to make sure you're in the right hemisphere. Totally untrue. <laughs> totally untrue. Might not be a bad idea the, uh, anyway. The direction yeah. of the of the toilet flush a spiral is 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 uh, is a function of the uh, of the of the shape of the toilet. <laughs> well, now what am I going to do if I wake up in a strange place? I don't know. I think you're going to have to look to see if you if you see the Southern Cross at night. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. Well, thanks for that. Jess, what do you got for us? On that note, well, I have something much less intellectual, so I'm glad to be going after going after Chris. This was a funny story that came across my news feed. It got some media attention, so maybe you both saw it. The overgrown sheep. Mm. Did you see this? No. There was a No. So, you know, so sheep, you know, some of my work has to do with domesticated animals and food production animals, and so that was probably why this one came over my 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 news feed. Um, but, you know, sheep are domesticated, right? They're, they're not wild animals. But in Australia, a couple of months ago, they found a, a sheep that had escaped. It either had escaped or it had been intentionally let, let loose from its farm environment and had not been shorn. And it was unclear, but probably many, many years. And this sheep was like walking, you know, kind of walking in the, you know, through the, through the fields. And people thought it was... It was like some sort of, you know, scary alien creature. It was the Monster. Yeti or it was something. But it was right. It was so it was carrying almost 80 pounds of wool. 
Wow. And because and so it was interesting. So I don't know, you know, if it's like a natural experiment. What happens to a sheep if it's not shorn for long periods of time? Like does the the wool just Anyway, the answer is that at least for this particular sheep, the wool just continues to grow and grow and grow. And um, anyway, they put some pictures of up on online, and it's kind of it's it's like it can hardly see. It's like it's a frightening. I was going to say, could, could yeah. it walk? It could walk, but it it just it it looked it looked like I don't I don't even I can't even describe it. It's like you know because the wool gets so matted too. It almost looks like the poor thing is like wearing trash, right? Because it's like all matted down. But then the happy, you know, the story ended in a happy way where they, they, um, you know, they, they sheared the sheep and then they put a little jacket on him and he's like Aww. so happy now. He's got this little blue jacket and I don't know, he went back to live on a farm, but wow. I don't know. It was, it was, you know, it was making me think of, you know, animals that are domesticated that people take on during the pandemic. This was like slightly unrelated. And then they're going to, you know, like, like chickens, for example, mm -hmm. you know, backyard chickens have been exploding because of the pandemic and everyone wants chickens. Wait, 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 yeah. not literally exploding. <laughs> Not literally not exploding. No, for. the phenomenon, demand for. Yeah, sorry, no, chicken chickens are not exploding. But no, the idea that you know people are getting chickens because they're home a lot, and then eventually we're not all going to be home a lot, and right. And so when you take on these animals, then yeah. well, I gotta say, I'm I'm actually quite concerned about my dog who we've had mm -hmm. for. 13, 14 years now, but mm -hmm. I'm I'm concerned when we all go back to work that he's going to be lonely because yeah. we've had us around the house for oh a year and a half. I'm going on two years almost by the time. Well, I guess a year and a half, but yeah, I I worry about these pets. Do you want to borrow my uh, my clippers? <laughs> no, the ones I use to shave so. my head. <laughs> nope. 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 Okay. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox or Don at, at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Gill or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Does Jessica have a, a Twitter handle as well? N no, no, that's why I didn't I don't. give her. I, right. I don't. Yeah. People are welcome to email me if they'd like. But you can but, just yeah. send uh, tweets to random Twitter accounts <laughs> and see if they get to Jeff. Let's just post your cell phone. You try. Yeah, oh, let's that's, do that. That's, that's a great idea. idea. Oh, yep. no, that's an even better idea. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. Mm -hmm.